One of my favorite reads of late has been a a work of historical fiction, uh, a trilogy actually, on the life of the brilliant statesman and orator uh, Cicero. How many of you have ever heard of Cicero and knew that it wasn't just a town in Chicago? Uh, In his uh, inimitable style, uh, historian and author Robert Harris unpacks the amazing life of this extraordinary Roman statesman and gives us a window not only into the way Cicero thought, but into the entire times in which Cicero lived, which was during the period of the Roman Empire just before the coming of Jesus. Reading these books, I was struck by what a dog-eat-dog world the Roman civilization was at this point. As Frank Bruni of the New York Times writes in his review of Harris's book, an American president's worst day is a sugary catwalk compared to the treasonous blood sport of politics in those ancient times. The gladiator fights which were going on in the stadiums of the Roman Empire were in a sense an image or a metaphor of the every person for themselves ethos that characterized the Roman world. It's a culture of endless positioning and backstabbing and betrayal. Society is divided into strict strata and segments and each group is suspicious or contemptuous or or hostile actively towards the other uh, parts of that society. Men and women and children are living separate lives in many ways and each just scrapping to take care of themselves. Where connections do form between people, they are often brief or brutal or shallow. As one slave girl observes before climbing into a bed with a stranger, Let us enjoy such brief ecstasy as the gods permit us, for it is only in these moments that men and women are truly not alone. Think about that. It's only in the carnal pleasures that we can find a sense of community. Harris's books strike me as an eerie picture of the world towards which it sometimes feels as if we are marching today. A world in which excessive individualism has overtaken so many dimensions of our society and life has become this nonstop fight for power, position, fame, pleasure, uh, a moment in the sun. At one point in Harris's book, Cicero himself actually voices his distress and exhaustion over what has become of the once glorious dream that is Rome. And he says this, We have so much, our arts and learning, laws, treasure, slaves, the beauty of our land, dominion over the entire earth, and yet why is it that some ineradicable impulse of the human mind always impels us to foul our own nest? How can we be the most prosperous most resource-laden people in the history of human life. And yet there reigns so much trouble, so much division, so much heartache. What is this ineradicable impulse of the human mind that impels us always somehow to foul our well-feathered nest? 
Had Cicero lived a, a little bit longer, Jesus of Nazareth could have answered the question for him. Jesus had a word, of course, as you know, for this ineradicable impulse responsible so, for so much fouling and folly to our day still. The word Jesus would have used, of course, is that shop-worn, politically incorrect term, sin. The word sin literally means curving down upon and inward upon self. It, the word sin is this notion of human nature as like a black hole that sucks in upon itself. And what Christ came to do in, in this world, in his teaching, in his modeling, in his very self-giving upon the cross was to reverse this curve. The Jesus effect, as we began to explore last week in our initial venture into the book of Acts, was, was to curve people up and out away from self. In fact, we see, as we studied last week, that the more and more people root their lives in Christ, the more they become like him. They grow up flourishing with all of the fruits of Christ's character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, humility, courage, all of these marvelous attributes for which we hunger to see more in our particular time. And they not only grow up, they grow out, these believers. They live with this incredible passion to extend the gospel and the kingdom of God's flourishing to as many other people as they can possibly reach in the span of time they have left on this earth. And when we meet the early church uh, in Acts chapter 4, they are living a life together that is about as far from dog-eat-dog individualism and consumerism as any community could possibly be. Listen to the text for today as I read from Acts chapter 4 at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Can you imagine the Congress of the United States being one in heart and mind? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. I want to stress this. The possessions were their own. This was not a communist society. They owned these things, and yet they lived as if these things were to be held gently with open hands and available for sharing with those who were in need. In fact, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This this tangible empirical evidence they had seen in the person of the risen Christ that there is a gracious power that surges up stronger than all of the gravity that presses human life down and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them in them all we're told without exception that there were no needy persons among them for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And we read in the earlier 
snapshot of the church's life in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, that so amazing is this lifestyle of generosity that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those being renewed, those being transformed by the witness of the gospel and the life of the early church. You know, in my role as the moderator of the Executives Breakfast Club of Oak Brook, an organization founded by this church many years ago that interviews senior leaders about what goes into leadership and about the forces and influences that made the leader's heart and mind. I've heard these remarkable stories through the years. I've had the chance to, to interview not only the, the heads of major uh, well-known established companies that all of us know of, McDonald's and Walgreens and Ace Hardware and the like, but also the founders of newer companies like Grubhub and Kickstarter and Protein Bar. I've had the chance to talk with people that were among the very first stakeholders in a little company called Apple and have a good friend who was one of the first people that signed on with an unheard of little startup called Priceline.com. And, and when I talk with these folks about their experience and their leadership life, at first they will often begin by giving me this kind of corporate speak about their company's vision and its values and how they develop employees. But I'll eventually get around to asking them what I really want to know. I'll say, tell me about the early days. What was it like to be there at the founding of this whole thing? And without exception, the person that I'm talking with will completely change their demeanor in response to that question. They will suddenly sit up and they'll scoot forward on their seat and there will be this light that will come into their eyes as they say to me almost uniformly, it was amazing. It was so amazing. And they'll go on to describe how miserably tough the original working conditions were. How this whole thing started in somebody's garage or in their basement or in their back room. They'll talk about how they and others pitched in. They just threw themselves all in with this wild abandon, with this almost crazy level of sacrifice in pursuit of something insanely great, as Steve Jobs would coin the term. They'll explain how this whole thing was always hovering on the edge of extinction. How the whole thing could have ended at any moment if it hadn't been for the windfall giving of certain key people at crucial moments. And they'll describe how, how somebody's friend made this big contribution at this decisive time or somebody's uncle volunteered to do the website at a cut rate or, or if Susan hadn't opened the door to this particular connection or if Sam hadn't kicked in his gifts there, I'm telling you the thing would have collapsed is what they'll tell me. And I realize they're, there's, they're describing not an organization so much as this, this movement. This movement of what I have come to call communal generosity. Of these diverse people sacrificing and staking something of themselves in service of something that is not of themselves. All for one, one for all. 
And I now know what that light in their eyes is when they describe all of this. It has a name. It's called flourishing. It's called flourishing. We are made for this. We are made in such a way that we are only at our best when we're throwing in our best for the sake of something really big and worthy, something beyond ourselves. When we're helping others rise to their best is when we experience our own greatest flourishing. I, I understand what the writer of the Hebrews meant when he said that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. It was for the joy that Jesus gave himself away upon the cross. In other words, Jesus was never more alive than at that moment when he laid it all down that others might live. And the early church never forgot it. They never forgot what they saw at the cross. They never forgot the generosity of the life of Jesus, the joy that he took in helping and healing and forgiving and lifting people up at their greatest point of need. In fact, the Apostle John, who probably understood Jesus best, went on to write, this is how we know what love is. And embedded in that is this <laughs> presupposition that Love is a confusing word. You know, it, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. This is how we know what it really is, says John. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives. If we've got any sense, if, if there's anything in us that sees the staggering beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters for if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity it's one of my favorite greek words splench nizomai it means visceral compassion if you see the need and don't have this gutsy kind of compassion that moves toward the need how can the love of god be said to be truly in him. Dear children, writes John, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. I think the first Christ followers wanted to experience for themselves the kind of flourishing they'd seen in Jesus. And they wanted to help others flourish the way they'd seen him help others flourish. Which I think is why this wasn't just sort of generally done, but this was done, this, this commitment, this sacrifice was, was something done by particular people, people with names and stories. In fact, we read at the end of the text, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The Bible doesn't make clear what the specific need was that 
that Joseph was responding to that, that led him to do this particular act of generosity. But what we do know from Scripture is that something happened in Joseph that day that transformed him from merely an ordinary Joe into Barnabas, who would go on to become one of the most famous and fruitful followers of Jesus that the New Testament records. That still happens. That transformation is still going on. And I get to hear in my role as pastor so many amazing stories of God's grace powerfully at work in and through the people of this congregation. It was about 10 o'clock on a winter night when my colleague Randy Lundgren got back to the church parking lot. She, she had spent pretty much that whole day uh, working downtown along with some other volunteers from our church with one of our mission partners in, in Chicago. And, and by the time she got back to the parking lot at 10 o'clock at night, you can imagine she's pretty tired. Uh, at the start of the day, Randy had prayed a prayer that strikes me as a really good one for all of us to think about praying before we get out of bed every single morning. And this was her prayer. She said, Lord, give me your eyes to see what you want me to see. Lord, give me your eyes to see what you want me to see. Now, however, 10 o'clock at night, she just wants to close those eyes, understandably. She just wants to go home and go to bed. The problem is that as the team arrives back at the parking lot, there's this other person already there, and she's there looking for help. She's gotten out of her car, and she's asking if there's somebody who can help her with a need. And people politely explain to her that, that the Christchurch food pantry will be open the next day. And if she'll just be patient, she can go there and she can find some kind of help. And then Randy watches as this woman gets back into her car and, and turns the lights of the car off and the engine off. And Randy realizes that she is going to be sleeping there and waiting till that food pantry opens up. And a voice rings in Randy's head. Do you see that? Are you just going to leave her? Randy gets up and reluctantly she walks over to the car and she sees the woman sitting there and three little girls in the back seat. And before she can stop herself, before she can do a full check with her husband, the words just blurred out of her mouth, why don't you come home with us? Why don't you come home with us? And a short time while later, the, the family is coming through the door of the Lundgren house, 
And the little girls are looking really uncomfortable about this. They're very rattled at being in this stranger's house. But about an hour later, everybody is eating popcorn and telling stories and talking and laughing and finding there's a lot that they actually share in common with one another. And the next day, the Lundgrens take them over to the food pantry and then they go with them back to the disheveled part apartment that they had not been staying in because the power had been completely turned off. And Mark and Randy managed to get to the landlord and they get the landlord to turn the power back on. And, and then they send out a note to our church community, to their social network in our church. And in, in time, a very short time, in comes a flood of of gas cards and bags of clothing and money for groceries and eventually actually a car to replace the barely functioning one that the mother had been driving in. In time, the, the children's father returns to the home. He starts attending church with the family. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. He goes back to school to become an electrician. They move into an apartment. They, the apartment gets furnished by the people of our congregation. And today they own their own house. And they're doing just fine. They're moving toward flourishing. On that particular morning when Randy had prayed her prayer to see what God sees, that young mother had also prayed. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. She had a prayer that she had also prayed, and the prayer was this, Lord, please send me an angel. But God is so generous that he sent a church of them, a host of them, a whole community that enfleshed Jesus for that family and helped to change their lives forever. I want to tell you about the community of people who recently rallied around a beloved disabled boy named Brett in our church and helped his family buy the motorized wheelchair for him that the insurance company had denied and that was way too expensive for the family to afford. And how a young girl named Mimi made a commitment to show up every single Sunday and be Brett's companion here at church to let him know that he's beloved and that someone's always with him. I want you to know about Kathy, a young woman, sings in our choir, who many years ago lost her husband at a very young age and whose house burned in a fire the very day after Christmas, and how a collection of servants came with bags of clothes, and how they gathered up all the Legos in bins and took them home and washed them carefully and brought them back so the kids would have something to play with, and how so many of those families, the dads in those families, became surrogate fathers to those kids and helped them grow up. I wish you could see the recently flooded basement at Pete and Brittany's house before the members of their neighborhood small group showed up to mop it up and replace the floor. I wish you could see all of the, 
of the ways that the people who volunteer weekly at our food pantry don't just pass out food, but build resourceful relationships with the people who come and, and live into, into their lives and support them in making the path from relief to betterment to development to flourishing. I wish you knew all the stories of how God's grace is at work so powerfully through the people of this congregation meeting needs meeting the needs of people that are precious to God. But you know, what fills me <laughs> is a sense of what might happen, what might life be like if this way became ubiquitous in our world. I wonder what it would be like if that generous grace that has taken hold in certain places truly took root in the life of every single Christian and every single church in America such that the needs of even one person became the concern of all people. Suppose that when an individual's needs became known, people in the neighborhood or the community asked, what have I been given that might be used to be of help here? And suppose a lot of people uh, move towards the need of that one person with money and tools and insights and networks and comfort and skills or whatever was particularly needed, how long would it take for loneliness to completely disappear in our society? For hunger to be eliminated, for that widow's front steps to be fixed, or that unemployed person to find the job. What if we were all for one? And conversely, what if it worked the other way? And what if the needs of all shaped the actions of each one? Suppose that as people pulled out their wallets every day, or they opened their mouths to speak, or they used the other capacities and powers they have, suppose they asked not, will this be good for me? Will this work for me? But asked instead, well, this could be good for we, would this work for others? How long would it take for crime to disappear if people began thinking this way? How long for gossip to be eliminated, for sniping criticism to cease, for charities to be flooded with resources? What if we were each one for all? Do you see why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world? Do you see why the local church is so important? Do you understand now what this whole Take Root initiative that we have been part of together is all about? We're just trying to, to foster and further this amazing movement of God's grace through history of which we are privileged to be a part. We're, we're just trying to continue this grace-based startup that is the church fueled by the same spirit of communal generosity that rose up in those first believers and made them a force for flourishing that changed history for good. We want it said of this church and of every single church that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all, them all, that there were no needy persons among them anymore. You see, we believe, we dare to believe that 
that the ineradicable impulse of selfish sin that Cicero saw destroying his republic can be opposed and, and overcome by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the life of his kingdom in our republic. We believe that just as the early church turned the tide of the culture in their time, we can turn it in our time from the grassroots up. And this is why we keep reaching out every single week to thousands of children, youth, and adults through ministries of worship, growth, and care here at Christ Church. It's why we're growing the capacity of this campus and extending into an Esplanade campus so that we can meet the needs of more people like I described in the stories I told. That's why we're helping schools and families in the Roosevelt Road corridor nearby and in Kenya flourish more than they would ever be able to flourish. If God's people, if the sons and daughters of encouragement were not sacrificing and building resourceful relationships with them. I hope this encourages you to know that you're part of this. And I hope and pray that when you tell others one day that you got to be a part of this insanely great venture, when you describe what you and others sacrificed to make this life-changing impact possible, people are going to notice a light in your eyes. It will be the light of Jesus like joy that fills the eyes of those who have exercised a generosity that helps others flourish and because of it are flourishing themselves so even if you haven't come forward like joseph did to be a significant part of what god is is doing in this amazing community and season it isn't too late we're going to give you an opportunity in a few weeks time to join us formally in this great enterprise but let's just close out our time today by listening to one more story, by seeing how that light is growing in the eyes of one couple and family in our church, because I hope that the story of what God is doing in them and through them will inspire us all. Let's watch together. We're the Schroders, I'm Anna and this is Corey, and we have two sons. We've been coming to Christ Church for about a year now. I think Corey and I come from different ends of the spectrum as it relates to money and finances. Corey is very much facts, figures, numbers, analytic, and I think I'm a little bit more fly by faith. And so I think one of the journeys that we've experienced together as a couple is really kind of blending those two styles. For me, the journey started with really acknowledging that God and money shouldn't be separate. I think growing up and even in my early adulthood, I always felt like money was a, a worldly possession and God was, was something greater. And until I realized that God was the provider of income and all the things that I have, it was difficult for me to, to link those two. Once we started tithing and giving more, I think I realized that it's really a, God is giving us everything whether it's food, family, money, and being good stewards of that is important. But I would say that going through that process has really changed me. We have, you know, from very early on in our marriage, made sure that it was just a part of worship. It's just a part of 
who we are as a family, it's who we are as a couple. Amazing things can happen when you kind of relinquish that control. It's our job as parents to instill that in our kids, and it's something that we're trying to do through showing them and teaching them and talking about it and making it just as authentic as we possibly can as part of an act of worship. To see um, our kids participate actively and with joy in the children's ministry has been incredibly cool. The other day, our oldest son, we, we told them that we were going to church and I think they said yay. <laughs> so that was a good sign. <laughs> and you get the recap after of what they've learned. Did you know, Mom, that Jesus walked on water? That was the big aha from a couple of weeks ago, so. And we did, we knew that. <laughs> to see a hunger and a desire for our kids to not only attend, but to give in this church has been really rewarding. Our children just started having lemonade stands. We teach them that you take a portion of that and give it to God, and you give a portion of it, put it in savings, and you can spend the rest of it, which they typically buy candy with. <laughs> but it was interesting because our oldest the other day asked if he could give more to God, and it was, it was cool to see that we really see the investments in the people of the church and the outreach as having far greater impact than anything that we could even imagine. So giving to Christ Church is not difficult for us. If someone's on the fence um, trying to determine if they're going to give or not to, to Christ Church and to take root, I would pray about it. Since we weren't really a part of Take Root, we didn't really make a commitment at the beginning because we were brand new and didn't really know anything about the church. We just got the shirt. And so figuring some of this stuff out now helps us take root, helps us be planted and rooted in a church that we really feel like we can grow with as a family. And that's been really fun. I think we need to, as a family, make a commitment and figure out what that looks like for us and finish strong.